and that uh, there's a fatalist component to it where it's like, yes, not only are we connected, but our place is really defined, well-defined for us. And yeah, there's some variation to where our places could be. There are reconfigurations of, of the entire network, but the network is well-formed. It's well-connected. And the idea that you're somehow disconnected from the, you know, the homeless person on the street or somebody else who looks nothing like you is completely bogus. We're recording now. So what's kind of uh, what's kind of weird about this, you know, is that this is a podcast that is, you know, both, you know, Andre's podcast, so my and my podcast too. So how we, you know, navigate this. Hopefully, this will just kind of turn into a conversation at some point, real quick. Um, but uh, but it's great to have you on the line here, Vishnu man. Like it's funny because I, I, last time we talked is probably ten years ago at this point, if not more. And that was the first time we ever talked. And prior to that, you know, you just, I, I wasn't sure if you were real. I thought maybe you were like a figment of Andre's imagination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Vishnu's like my relative that I'm like super proud of. And I'm like, yeah, my cousin Vishnu this and my cousin Vishnu that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But both of us had heard so much about each other up till that point, you know, that it's, uh, um, you know, pretty fucking awesome. Man. Yeah, it's true. Uh, so my understanding is, and this is what Dre said, that you kind of heard a couple of our conversations and wanted to jump in to the talk, right? That's sort of the deal? No, that was, uh, this kind of was an offshoot of a conversation that Andre and I were having. And uh, I was trying to explain the topic to him, and he said this would be a great topic to explain to people in general and, uh, and have a kind of a bigger conversation around it. It's really more of a philosophical thing than anything else, but... It has parameters that overlap in physics and they overlap into spirituality as well. Because for a long time, you know, it seems like human beings have been looking for um, sort of like an explanation to everything. Like, why are we here? Where are we going? You know, what is all of this stuff? And ways of quantifying it and also qualifying it. And oftentimes the two don't actually um, support each other because the qualitative uh, assessments of things are really just personal and subjective. Yep. Whereas the uh, the quantitative is what all science is built out of, and science has had a real problem trying to reconcile any of the stuff that comes out of the more creative, personal, intuitive explanations of things. But at some point, the acknowledgement is that if we finally do have a theory of the universe and what we're in and how, and what existence is, it should really encompass as much of human um, of the human thought process as we possibly can. That means covering everything in terms of imagination as well as hard science. You know, there should be some mathematical basis of it that doesn't violate this belief system. Yeah. And um, I remember years ago when I actually, when I first went to undergrad, Carl Sagan was still around. And I got to take a class with this guy. And, um, you, you know, take a class with Carl Sagan? Yeah. And it was Good like, a, yeah, crazy. That, it was astrogeology class. And, like, not a very interesting topic, but he was a fascinating person. I remember uh, 
I saw him in the stacks one day and I was at, looking for a book and he knew exactly where to get it and it was in another library. So either he had just recently looked at that book or at some point and just looked at it and committed it to memory. But um, yeah, he was actually one of the main founders of um, the church of, like, it's not Scientology, but it was like a science church. I can't remember yeah. the exact name. It was like the Church of Science. I would drive past it, you know, or go past it on the bus and say, what the heck is that? And everybody would tell me, that's where all the physics people go. <laughs> you know, like, that's, that's their spirituality there. I'm like, what, is there a cyclotron to meet there or something? <laughs> <laughs> what, are they, what are they talking about? But it had to be this. It had to be non-locality yeah. um, because the idea, uh, the theories around uh, non-locality date all the way back to 1929 yeah. to, uh, to De Broglie. And then yeah. um, David Bohm went and, you know, kind of resuscitated it and gave it some mathematic life. And he was ostracized and essentially extricated from the, uh, from the academic community. Because the one thing about science is that you can't really come through in the scientific community and do something super revolutionary. It's like the art world. Like yeah. if you come through and you do something super revolutionary, everyone's going to be like, wait, no, that's not the way it's done. People yeah. will line up to tell you that that's not a procedure. So um, you have to get past all these different naysayers. And if you get enough of them, it's like a, like a, like a Byzantine general's problem. You know, if you get enough of them, you get 51% or more saying that it looks good than, than in, you know, yeah, usually you accept it. Yeah, that's particularly true of theoretical physics. Yeah, uh, no, I was going to say before we before we like just jump like head first into all this stuff, and I wonder, I was wondering if both of you would be cool if we take just one moment and like pull back a second and do two quick things first. Um, one is that when Andre and I first started this conversation, we took a moment to take a step back and talk a little bit about kind of our faith journey and what led us to this point, just so for listeners sake, they can understand kind of who we are and what our background is and everything else. And so I'd love to actually hear that from you. And then speaking of what you were just talking about, I mean, I don't know if you've read Thomas Kuhn, but you're fucking talking about Thomas Kuhn. Um, this dude uh, who was uh, um, a philosopher of science and wrote this whole book about paradigms and how paradigms work in science. And uh, the basic kind of understanding that he was trying to put in there is that we think of science as a kind of slow progress towards the truth. Like if we were to pull back and look at the narrative arc of science, what right. we see is this slope up closer and closer to truth as time goes on. But in all actuality, it looks a lot more like the stock market. You know what I mean? There are times when we're closer to truth, times when we're further away from truth and and um, and how close we are, how far away we are from truth really has more to do with just the politics of the thing. Right. Do people believe in this kind of thing or that kind of thing? And, and mm -hmm. what happens is, is that there's a great discovery in science that then has a, a causes a paradigm shift in terms of how people think of things. And that completely readjusts. Um, our approach to stuff. So you look at like science before the invention of the microscope and science after the invention of the microscope, right? Science before the invention of um, all the different ways to kind of look at shit and then science after the, and it just all shifts. So uh, would you mind like first thing, just walk us through a couple of minutes in terms of your spiritual journey and then let's maybe talk Thomas Kuhn and then let's dive into this uh, quantum mechanics stuff. Uh, with respect to my spiritual journey, I a lot of influence from an early age from different uh, spiritual um, diasporas, 
as well as ethnic diaspora since like uh, I don't know how many races I've got in me, but it's you know it's more than two. Um, and it seems like each contributed their own belief system in some way or the other um, in terms of spirituality. Certainly Christianity was there like you know right from the start, um, specifically the Anglican faith because that's big in Trinidad. Um, and then I have Hinduism that makes its way in there, you know, around the same time. And, uh, you know, also my family was very good at curating uh, our own culture all the way back to Africa. So, you know, there was a lot of influence that came from um, the Shango religion, which uh, one version of the Shango religion has kind of been bastardized and turned into like Vodan and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's a much older religion that goes back to Africa and it's an anthropomorphic one, but it has, like all these religions, they have these axioms that seem to be, uh, you know, so, sort of a Venn diagram between, between these different beliefs. And they all sort of like serve the same purpose to explain, you know, the, what is the truth of existence? Um, it's a search for origin and also destination of the individual. And so all of those came into play um, the various versions of Christianity as, uh, as time went on uh, that I explored primarily through my mother. For a while, she was a Jehovah's Witness. Um, I went to Catholic school, and I saw they operated there. Um, you know, so I've, had, I've explored a, a variety of different Asian and Judeo-Christian forms of religion. But uh, what kind of really took hold for me was math um and you know in terms of a search for an answer math is basically about that i mean you know you're always just trying to come up with an answer a solution to a problem and it's very neat and it's very black and white and when you're dealing with a lot of gray areas in your life um it's comforting to find solace in that black and white of mathematics and then from mathematics interpretation of mathematics and applying mathematics to the real world and you know why is a why these series occur in nature? Why is Fibonacci series constantly occurring? You know the golden ratios in flowers, and you know why are these patterns constantly occurring? Like they have applications. Numbers have applications in the real world. And then um, beyond that, then using these numbers and formulas to explain certain phenomena, both on the macroscopic level and on the subatomic level. Is uh, has been as good as any other form of of spirituality as I've experienced. But on the other side, uh, you know, as much as I've had uh, a lot of deep immersion into the sciences, I've never been able to extricate myself from my own identity, which is as an artist. So I've always had an artistic interpretation of everything, even visual representations of mathematics. I'm not an analytic mathematician; I'm a visual mathematician, and uh, and with the visual stuff. Um, there's a level of interpretation that's spiritual. Um, just how you experience things that you see and how you interpret things that you see. And uh, sort of like the, the symbolic interpretation of the world. So symbolism has been a big part of it. And I would say that in terms of spirituality, that's where my spirituality is right now. It's in terms of symbolic representations of the world around us. Be they uh, psychological symbol- uh, symbolism or... Um, you know, quantifiable symbolism in the form of functions. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, and really not a whole lot more beyond that. So I'm coming from a completely other end than, than, um, 
than Andre is. Although we've had, you know, in our early days, we've had the sort of the same journey. We've had the same exploration through spirituality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cousins, right? Same family background, same yeah. heritage, same all that stuff, but sort of two different takes on the same thing. Yeah, exactly. How does, just out of curiosity, um, just to kind of put it on the street, right? I mean, I, I think a lot about theologies and their street value and how they kind of translate to an everyday. So, uh, you know, obviously I, I know a thing or two about your history as a martial artist. Um, and I know a little bit about your other work as an artist in the visual arts, films and things like that. I'm curious in terms of just the everyday applicable, you know, ap the application of, of your particular approach to your understanding of the world. How does it manifest? Um, it manifests in different ways, um, but I observe the world basically through an artist framework, and that applies to sciences. You know, because at some point in human history, being an artist, whether that was the word that was used or not, it meant something a lot more than what it means sure. today. Um, it's very encompassing of all the things that human beings do. It's the earliest thing that we know that we did as humans and everything that we do, whether it's in technology or anything like that, it requires the level of creativity that almost revolutionizes industries and gets a lot of pushback from people around who maybe aren't as forward thinking. So um, I try to maintain a sort of like a healthy artistic approach to things where if you were to segment a person into three different components, like a mind body and a spirit, um, you know, as you said, the martial arts would comprise the body, the um, obviously the engineering and, and sciences would combine would comprise the mind. And then art has been my spirit has been my soul all the way through. And it is it is bigger than the other two. It is right. a driving force. And it was there before the other two and it will be thereafter. So that's my that's my approach to it. Okay, I think I, I think I get that. Dre, am I missing any questions here? Anything else we should drill down with Vishnu before we dive into the science? <laughs> no, I, th I think that's it. But uh, like, uh, just to mention one thing for anybody who's like listening to this first rather than the other stuff first, uh, this kind of came up because Josh and I were fumbling around with the idea of uh, basically almost like religion and science at some point should be converge and be one thing. Um, but since we're not scientists, scientific background, we're really fumbling around with wh what that would look at, look like. And right. more than saying that it's just imp important that that happens rather than saying what that structure is. Uh, and then I was having a conversation with uh, Vishnu about something completely different. And he started telling me about this uh, non-locality effect in quantum physics and the origins of that and the implications of that. And a lot of that description was jiving with what the goals of uh, our religion quote unquote was made for good and for the continuation of the species so i was like yeah i'm never going to be able to explain this as well as vishnu <laughs> 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 uh but there's a lot there that people need to hear and, and you and i actually need to hear all right per perfect perfect well i mean my mindset is I, I i studied a little bit of philosophy in college and and my gateway to kind of understanding even some of the more esoteric sciences has always been to figure out how to connect some of those really difficult kind of themes and concepts you know to try to sort of understand them through the mindset of philosophy and theology and uh, and i was pretty heavily impacted by reading the writings of thomas kuhn who's one of the more 
uh, famous philosophers of science. And uh, the last thing spelled K-U-H-N, I think. There's an H in there somewhere. K-H-U-N. I think K-U-H-N. Yeah, K-U-H-N, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. And, and his, his big thing, and a lot of scholars of Thomas Kuhn will come around and say, no, nah, you've got this all wrong, Josh. Like, don't fucking say it like this. But this is kind of how I took it was, you know, this, this real understanding that we think about science as a pursuit of truth, but it doesn't always work that way. But what essentially happens is, is you have these sort of these paradigms that inform everything in terms of how people think about themselves, the way we conceptualize the world, the way we conceptualize the universe and how we sit in it. You know, it wasn't that long ago that people believed that the earth was the center of the universe. Right. And think about like what that means in terms of identity and how and how how a person then walks around their life understanding that that the that they are in fact the center of the universe you know we live at a time right now as crazy as it seems where we understand that as a human race we are as advanced as we have ever been throughout all of human history you know our ability to understand science our technology is is as advanced as it's ever been and we kind of walk around as if that's always the case but there were entire generations of people who lived in the shadow of other generations of people who, who existed before them, who clearly were more advanced than they were. Do you know what I mean? And think about like what that would have been like for a human being who is uh, living in the shadow of like the destroyed Roman empire that could build things that they and their societies couldn't even conceive of how to build it, right? So it, all these things kind of have an impact in terms of identity. And then what happens is, is that there are these paradigm shifts, these massive shifts in just the basic ways that people think of themselves that then um, change, you know, sort of everything in terms of how we conceptualize the universe and our position in it. And I personally think that humanity's discovery of quantum mechanics and our understanding of it is going to have a massive impact on human identity once it enters the most basic understand, like the most basic aspect of how people think of themselves. Does that make sense? Like, you know, so up until now, we've always believed that like, for me, I can say I am the only Josh Burroughs in existence. I'm defined by the fact that no other being can occupy my space and time at the same space and time that I'm there. Right. But it turns out that actually that's not true. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's not true at all. You know what I mean? And what does it mean all of a sudden when, you know, well, I, that's I, actually what we're going to discuss, whether or not that okay. is or isn't true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because uh, because uh, non-locality would state that many worlds is not possible. Okay. All right. Let's go. Let's go. All right. So uh, <laughs> paradigm shift and understanding of, of human, uh, human identity, paradigm shift of all this stuff. What's non-locality, man? Talk me through it. Well, I mean, it all goes back to the double slit experiment. Like, how can we explain why light can behave as both a particle and a, as a wave? And, right. uh, and how the pattern actually changes when you try to observe the phenomena. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that the observer affects the observed has been known for a while. Yeah. But the reasons why have not been well understood. And the math defining it has only been generally described as a probability distribution function. That's the uh, Copenhagen model. Yeah. But what De Bruyne and Bohm, David Bohm, um, tried to really uh, show was that there was another way to look at the perspective of how quantum mechanics works. That there is essentially another hidden function 
or a hidden wave, what they call the pilot wave, that, um, that we're not seeing. And that if such a wave exists, and it could be a wave that's running sort of like perpendicular or running in another dimension of space, orthogonal <laughs> to um, the way light particles, the photons are moving, that it can have an impact on whether or not the uh, photonic pattern scatters, you know, or if it gives you a straight beam. And, uh, and so later when we had the computing power to be, be able to simulate this effect, it was found that, yeah, this is a totally viable version of the of explaining what's going on at a quantum level. I don't know that that explanation also explains some of the weird quantum phenomena like entanglement or spooky out in the distance, which is when you have two particles or maybe a single particle that gets separated. You can put any amount of space you'd like in between them, and if you change the direction or the spin or the charge on one, the other one changes instantaneously, fast in the speed of light, which violates relativity. And it didn't make any sense to Einstein. He thought there was something wrong, and he kind of didn't like any of the explanations. In fact, he didn't even want to go along with quantum mechanics at any level. Um, ultimately, he got proven wrong there, but no one was able to come up with a way of really sort of integrating relativity with what's going on with, uh, with these particles acting strangely at the subatomic level. Right. Then the explanation of non-locality came along that said that basically the reason why this, these two particles can affect each other faster than the spe speed of light is because they're one. Right. And actually our description of the observer and the observed is wrong because the observer is the observed and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like looking at yin and yang. And you're like, oh, yeah, yin defines yang, yang defines yin. And if you didn't have one, you wouldn't have the other by definition. But when you look at them both from far away, you'll say it's both yin and yang. It's one thing. Right. And that, that is the philosophical interpretation of it, which actually goes back to a lot of Asian cultures. It's seen in Buddhism. Um, Krishnamurti talked about it. And actually, that's how, how uh, David Bohm became acquainted with, uh, with Murti. But he was actually pulling this ideology from much older um, Hindu texts. Had always believed that they were one and the same thing, and so this idea that there's things that are separate uh, at the subatomic level and are sort of, sort of unique units that don't have effect on other units does not seem to be true. And in subsequent experiments, it's been shown that you know particles actually not only are part of systems, you know that uh, reality essentially is formed by particles that realize that there are other particles in their space and have a probability of interacting with them, and then do. And then from that interaction, actually define their place in space. Like their place is much well, much better defined when they have those interactions. And the more of those interactions that you have, the more of those connections that are formed up, the, the, the stronger reality gets built up. This is how, how matter itself gets built up. And then the question is whether or not you can extend any of this this activity going on in the quantum universe to anything that's happening on, at the macroscopic level that's happening with people. And philosophically, you actually, it seems like you can. That it's basically the idea that, you know, we are all essentially connected. And that uh, there's a fatalist component to it where it's like, yes, not only are we connected, but our place is really defined, well-defined for us. 
And yeah, there's some variation to where places could be. There are reconfigurations of, of the entire network. But the network is well-formed. It's well-connected. And the idea that you're somehow disconnected from the, you know, the homeless person on the street or somebody else who looks nothing like you is completely bogus, that you are connected and there is an impact. And the butterfly effect is very real in that sense. Yeah, it's, and it seems to be it seems to be entirely supported by non-locality, non-locality not not only as as a as a physics property of subatomic particles, but as a, a philosophical you know as, as a philosophical precept for for the yeah. way we need to view ourselves and view others that there is no other, you know, because the yeah. other is essentially yourself. Although there are differences, and we have different places. The, the observer is the observed. We're actually part of the same single structure. Yeah, that's, I mean, there, there's so much uh, Hinduism there. It's sort of unbelievable, right? I mean, to, to really, right. I mean, that's like ultimately what enlightenment is, is that realization, right? That right. you are one and one right. and all. It's all part of the same Godhead and everything else. Um, just to back up because my brain is exploding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my, my layman's understanding of quantum physics you know, sort of says, all right, look, I mean, basically, we're, we're looking at very, very small things, right? We understood that, um, you know, the human body is made up of cells, and then you get smaller, and, and the cells are made up of atoms, then you get even smaller, and the atoms are made up of quarks. And the problem is, is that while atoms behave very similarly to cells, and cells seem to behave very similarly to bodies, the quarks don't behave similarly to atoms. That's because you're below the Planck length. So when you get to a certain size, a certain scale, the reason why Moore's law has a limit is because when you get down to the size of an electron, you know the barrier in between, like the way most solid state uh, and, and basically chip technology works today is by having semiconductors. You know, Sometimes they conduct, sometimes they don't. Well, when you get small enough and the barriers between different units of a semiconductor, um, you know, when it's when it's below the Planck length, now the electrons can jump; they can be anywhere. You got Heisenberg's uncertainty principle in play, and um, so you don't actually know. I mean, the uncertainty principle basically says you don't actually know the specific place that the particle would be um, at any given time. You may have a probability of what it's going to be. But if you don't know the pilot wave, if you wanted to bring back in non-locality, if you don't know the pilot wave, you wouldn't know exactly where that electron would be. But if you right. did know the pilot wave, if you did know that there was another, there was another function exerting force on those uh, particles, then you would have a much better prediction model. And um, it's kind of similar to uh, the way you think about like uh, building Markov chains and building uh, networks of things happening, like cause and effect, like one thing leads to another, leads to another. But if you're missing anything in the causality chain, you really can't map it all the way through. Um, and that's that's the whole idea of, uh, of finding the pilot wave. Like, you know, that is sort of like, if, uh, if this area of physics had a missing link, that would be it, like describing the pilot wave. Um, right, and right. So Right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your finish your finish your point there. No, I mean that's that's the the one takeaway of this is that you can't always define that because we're at a pine clink, and un unfortunately, our ability to really manipulate things at that level and even even see things at that level, like for example, no one's seen an electron. We know what it does. We use it every day, but no one's seen it. 
Right. Right. What's that saying? Uh, It's like, how how do you know they're there? And then the scientist said, if you could spray it, it's there. (laughs) Right. You can see its effect. Yeah. Right. Right, exactly. I mean, it's it's like a matter of time kind of thing. It's like, you know, the ancients would have said, you know, how do you know air is there? You, know, <laughs> you breathe it. You're breathing yeah. it. So it's yeah. Somehow it's having effect. You can't smell it or taste it or whatever, but it's there. Otherwise, right. I mean, and, yeah, and, and most of this stuff in terms of our technology, we're either smashing things together at that right. level to take a big picture with some massive piece of engineering, you know, with a very sensitive chip that can see the energy dispersion you know, in some wavelength, uh, or you're, uh, you're trying to use subatomic particles to divide other subatomic particles in some more concentrated way. Like right now we can manipulate atoms to build molecular computers, but below that, like manipulating subatomic particles, we can't even see them. No. Yeah. You know? we, can, yeah. we can see their effect. And so it gets, we, have it gets, found, we have found the Higgs boson. Like a couple of years ago, they saw it. They found it. So yeah, they well, you've, it. you've you've seen the phenomena of it. Yeah. You know, you've seen the wave. Yeah. You know? uh, here's the here's the wave that that creates mass. Um, yeah, that, that's but it, uh, we still don't have a graviton. That's what you need. The graviton would solve would would finish the theory of a uh, of a unified universe. You know, of right. all the forces. Kind of know when right. gravity broke off at like ten to minus forty six, but don't really know what it was doing we don't really know what sort of like the early particles that describe gravity was um it's a big hole like what happens when a black hole goes down to a point of singularity it's obviously a quantum point but what's going on there what particle represents it you know um where does the inflation come from right so if we don't understand gravity which is essentially creating and forming space and curving space at that subatomic level we don't have a complete theory there right Right. right. Probably it, those particles have, if they, if we do find them, probably have non-locality in play. Because if you think about it, it all started from a single origin, like you know, some kind of infinite density in some kind of tiny space. So essentially, it was one unit at some point. It's expanding out. It's still one unit. It's yeah, just it's the, one unit. the illusion of the separations are really just an illusion. So many illusions going on in the universe from a mathematical standpoint, like needing only two dimensions of information to describe three. You know, it's counterintuitive, but it's but it's there. Uh, technically, the the stuff that's on the surface area of the universe, if you were to think of the universe as a ball, which it isn't, but if you were to think about it like that, you'd say the surface area could describe everything inside of it, just like a hologram. All you need is the surface area, right? Right. To create that illusion. that illusion next episode.